Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Anyway, some of the things that are going to happen in 2018, starting on Monday, have to do with the business community in this country, particularly small and medium-sized businesses. And as we've often said, and it's the truth, these are the key employers in this country. Small and medium-sized businesses are the main employers in Canada. They create most of the jobs, and most of them are entrepreneurs, and they work long hours. They dedicate their lives to their businesses. But in today's somewhat fractious, topsy-turvy world, the employer has become the enemy for some, and they're seen to be doing too well. Or they're not paying enough to their employees. And so governments step up, like the Ontario government, the Alberta government this year, raising the minimum wage in Ontario. It'll be raised on Monday to $14 in Alberta, in October to $15. Ultimately, if Premier Wynne remains Premier Wynne, it'll be $15 in Ontario next year. But it's $14 on Monday, and uh, then in October, $15 in the province of Alberta. There's going to be extended parental leave, and uh, if you're a new parent, new mom or new father, and if your parental leave is intended for December the 3rd, so a couple of weeks ago, you'll be, if it, that's when it started, um, also after December 3rd, you'll be able to extend it for up to 12 months, and that's uh, federal employment insurance, Extending that over 18 months, and you'll be able to stay home with your kids longer. What else have we got? Carbon price. The Prime Minister insists that all the provinces and territories will have a carbon tax, a carbon price in 2018. And if they don't, then he's going to, and the federal government will provide that carbon tax. This at a time when the government of Donald Trump, we'll talk about them later, but the government of Donald Trump has lower taxes, or will be lowering taxes, particularly for corporations and individuals, and so, but in the business world, taxes will be lower in the United States, higher in Canada. How can that help our economy? Well, we all know budgets balance themselves, so I guess all will be well. What else we got here? Oh, taxes are changing for small businesses. The tax reform plan, we're going to take another shot at it, Trudeau and Morneau, after essentially uh, calling small and medium business owners, the, the people who are the entrepreneurs, the people who are the driving force for jobs in this country, essentially calling them crooks earlier in the year and talking about them avoiding taxes. And isn't it interesting how a couple of weeks later we find out who the ethical miscreants are? It's not the uh, business people, it's Trudeau and his buddy. So small business tax changes are coming up, and uh, there's so much pot 
in July. It's going to be, uh, Trudeau insists it's going to have to be legal by July. You know, for 75 years, nobody, everybody fought against pot being legal. Now we have the Prime Minister of Canada setting a hard deadline. I want it all legal by the 18th of July. They've got a party planned? Dan Kelly is the uh, president, the CEO, and the chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, the organization that represents small and medium-sized business in this country. He joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Hey, Dan. Good afternoon. Sorry for my rather lengthy uh, dissertation on on what's coming our way, but I started with one and I couldn't stop. There is a big, big mozzarella change coming to the business community of in 2018, and and a lot of it, unfortunately, is is sucking the wind out of what otherwise might be some some progress in the economy, and that's that's really the unfortunate part for a lot of business owners who, as you said, are working incredibly hard. They really feel like governments are are, design, are designing more roadblocks to put in front of them as opposed to, to helping them out, and, and that's not really the way it should be. What is the most troubling, what is the most challenging, what is the most negative uh, initiative that's being put in place where your members across Canada, the small and, business, uh, small and medium-sized business community members, would say, no, don't do that, no. I think there's a tie. There's uh, there's one federal and and one that's happening in in two provinces in particular, likely to spread beyond that. Uh, the tie would be between the federal tax changes that are starting to take effect in 2018. Even the even the water down package is very very worrisome, and part of it goes into effect on on January 1st. Uh, and the second big chunk of that is the uh, is not just the minimum wage hike that you referenced in Ontario and Alberta. But beyond that, the labor law changes that come along with that, there are, I mean, the Alberta and Ontario government basically said to union leaders uh, in their provinces, what do you guys want? And uh, we're happy to write you a blank check. Uh, and essentially, that's what's happening. There are so many labor law changes. It is going to be difficult even for business owners to keep up with all of the labor law reforms that are going into effect next year. Uh, let alone actually uh, deal with the consequences on it uh, of it for their businesses. So is all this stuff going to cost jobs? It, it absolutely will. We're already seeing that. I've just noticed on uh, my Twitter feed over the last uh, number of days uh, a large number of business owners flagging the number of positions that they're going to be downsizing, unfortunately, doing that, of course, with a very heavy heart. Um, I think, though, the, 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 the other effect of this is going to be far more subtle, it's going to be a reduction in the number of hours that uh, that employees are going to have, especially for part-time workers. Instead of having, you know, 25 hours, you might have 20 hours. And then as the business year rolls on, unless the business starts to rebound back, uh, that could be trimmed even further. And that, that's essentially the movie that we saw in, in Seattle, where low-wage earners, who were supposed to be the big winners of the $15 minimum wage, actually ended up losing, on average, $1,200 each because either the, their job dried up or the number of hours that they had uh, were, were more were more limited and 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 we're we're facing that. But look, there is a, a, a just a tsunami of, of changes that are that are affecting the business community across the country. Some of them, as you mentioned, the carbon taxes. Of course, there's a business appli- a business application to that too. And then we have uh, next year, starting January first, 2019, seven straight years of Canada pension plan premium increases. And and that is you know I we haven't even seen the the the, uh, the start of that but I can tell you when that starts to kick in employers say you know what I don't have any more dollars 
I got to start to trim that from my payroll budget. And that obviously costs jobs uh, for the future. So, um, you know, we I think individual governments look at their one micro move on this file or that file. Very few of them look at the macro picture of all of the knocks that are facing small and medium sized firms and, and or thinking about how they can expect entrepreneurs to keep up. Um, can you give me one example of one move that is being done, committed, put in place by either the federal government or a provincial government that is going to cost jobs? People listening to this program now who have jobs in smaller, medium-sized businesses feel comfortable with those jobs, love the jobs because they're actually interacting with the boss who's got his or her life invested in the company. Uh, what one move specifically is going to take jobs off the table? Oh, man, there there's a bunch of them. But uh, but the minimum wage is probably going to have the most immediate effect. We've got uh, $14 an hour. I mean, it, look, 18 months in Ontario, mm-hmm. the minimum wage is expected to rise 32%. And so we are starting to see business owners saying that they are going to have to trim the number of positions. I just saw one uh, just yesterday saying that he is going to have to let eight positions go uh, prior to January 1st in order to pay for the the payroll effect of the minimum wage hike that they're going to experience. Now, not every business pays the minimum wage, and what often gets forgotten is that if the minimum wage earner uh, gets gets their increase of 32%, you know, the person that was making 16 or 20 bucks an hour is going to be looking to the employer and saying, well, where's my 32% increase in my wages? And even if it's not 32%, you can imagine... Uh, This comes from a philosophy that there's just tons and tons of surplus dollars and big profits in small and medium-sized firms that that just very much isn't often, is very often not the case. Yeah. And Dan, people who are earning $15 now, and I think you partly said this, uh, are going to be turning around and saying to their employers, well, are you telling me I'm worth only minimum wage? That's, that's exactly it. There, there are a lot of people that have worked really long and really hard to get to 15 or $16 an hour and are going to be none too happy when that essentially becomes the minimum wage. Uh, and all of that, 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 that ripple effect through the labor market is going to be significant. And of course, you know, to, to somebody that hasn't looked at this in, in, in a great amount of detail, hasn't studied to see how this has gone down in, in other jurisdictions, they might think, well, this is great. If, if everybody's making five bucks more an hour, uh, you know, that's going to help small businesses out. They're going to have more dollars to spend. And, and yeah, to a, on, on a certain level, that's true. But, but that assumes that the business has those surplus dollars and it's just going to take them out of profit. Mm-hmm. Most of our members tell us the place that they're going to have to take them is out of other forms of payroll that they're paying. So out of the number of jobs or the number of hours that they're providing to, to uh, their employees. So that's probably going to be the first and biggest effect uh, right off the hop in the new year, but I would imagine certainly not the last, given the number of changes that we're, we're seeing. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Um, I'm speaking uh, with Dan Kelly, the CEO and the president and the chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Just another two or three minutes with Dan here. Um, Dan, here's another uh, tweet that I received if minimum wage is really needed, make it for the folks over 23. Make a minimum wage for school-aged teens, a 16-year-old weekend flipping burgers living at home, uh, can do with less like we did when we grew up. So a rate for breadwinners and a lower rate for youth. I don't know. if that, Does that make sense to you? 
It does. We've we've actually had experiments with that in Canada, where where younger people uh, that are that are going to school, not the primary breadwinner for the family, get paid a lower minimum wage. Uh, most provinces have moved away from from that, unfortunately. It certainly was a helpful policy for for youth employment in Canada. Uh, one of the things just related to, but you know, we get that there are people, there are a handful of people that are trying to earn minimum are earning minimum wage and trying to support themselves or their families. Some people that get stuck at minimum wage and can't seem to shake it and get a higher paying job. That does exist, but it's a very very small percentage. And and our point all along has been that there are more effective ways to help low-income earners like better education and training opportunities for them, like the move that the federal government just made to raise the, the, the working low-income tax credit. I mean, that was a, a move that the, the Trudeau government made that we applauded uh, in the last budget because it puts real dollars in the pockets of, of people at, uh, that, are, that are struggling. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, this policy, as, as I think your, uh, as, a, as I think the email outlines uh, very well, is it, it ends up hurting the very people that it's intended to help. And the vast majority of minimum wage earners are supplementary incomes to their family. That income's still important, but it's not the only thing they're gaining. They're gaining experience along the way, and, and that, that's costly for the employer and sometimes goes away when the wages go up too high. Yeah. Just uh, one last question, 30-second answer from me, please. Is all of this activity by government that is directed towards small and medium business, whether it's provincial or federal government, is it going to close businesses? Is it going to force businesses to uh, move, to maybe move to the United States where taxes are going to be significantly lower, whereas in Canada they're going to go up also because of the carbon tax the prime minister insists on? Will businesses close because of all of this? They will. It won't be as dramatic. Uh, It won't be a dramatic shift, and it certainly won't be an immediate shift. But these things happen over time, mm-hmm. and, and there are more and more businesses that are getting lured away by attractive packages from the U.S. states. Uh, I've talked to a lot of manufacturers these days that are saying all of the knocks that they're taking really are starting to motivate them and be more vulnerable to those requests to come elsewhere, where, where it seems business is welcomed. Canada was moving in that direction. Sadly, it seems that we're shifting, uh, where business is becoming a dirty word again to our politicians, and, and that's probably by biggest concern. Okay. What else in 2018 are we going to see? Yeah. Dan, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. All the best. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Dan Kelly, the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 2014, a video was released, and uh, this is going to disturb some people, but I'm going to tell you what it is because it's relevant to what we're talking about. It showed the beheading of an American aid worker, Peter Kassig. He, along with 16 Syrian soldiers, were beheaded. And Jihadi John, who was the voice, the masked voice of ISIS, looked at the camera and said, Here we are, burning the first American crusader in Dabiq, eagerly waiting for the remainder of your armies to arrive. That was the attitude. That was the objective. It remains the objective of ISIS. They may have lost their territory, but they are still a force, and they are still um, a philosophical entity that many people identify with, including individuals who left this country and traveled overseas, Syria more than likely, by way of Turkey, and joined ISIS, swore an oath of allegiance to ISIS, spent time with ISIS, participated with ISIS, who knows what they did. 
but we remember what we saw on television, and, and we remember what we were told, and we remember what ISIS did. So now these individuals are coming home. They're coming home to Canada. They're trying to get home to other countries. Some of the other countries, like the United States, France, Australia, the U.K., are, have special forces in the Middle East. And their objective and their mission is to intercept their foreign nationals who be, or their nationals who became ISIS members and kill them before they can get back to those countries. And the SAS, Britain's elite special forces unit, were told this is the most important mission in your 75-year history, the regiment's 75-year history. As far as Canada is concerned, those who are returning to this country, ISIS members, our prime minister, Mr. Justin Trudeau, has made the statement that these individuals could become extraordinary voices for Canada, positive voices for Canada. And I suspect he's thinking about ending or, or working toward de-radicalizing individuals who are radicalized. It's quite a jump to assume that they're, first of all, they're going to participate and B, they'll have any idea how to do it. And C, why would you take the Muslim community out of it? While the rest of the world is looking to put these individuals, their individuals who joined ISIS in prison, or kill them, look at what the Americans, the French, the Australians, and the Brits are doing. Our prime minister says it's an ex- there could be extraordinary voices for this country. It's outrageous. It is absolutely outrageous. We're joined on the program by Rahil Raza, public speaker, consultant for interfaith and intercultural diversity. She's an outspoken advocate for gender equality and an activist for women's rights internationally. She's the author of Their Jihad, Not My Jihad, and when she spoke at Canada's Parliament, she received a standing ovation. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program, Rahil. Thank you for coming today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Zudi Jasser is the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, former United States Navy Lieutenant Commander, nuclear cardiologist, past president of the Arizona Medical Association, and author of Battle for the Soul of Islam. That is just some of Zudi's CV. Dr. Jasser, it's always good speaking with you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me back, Roy. I appreciate it. Rahil, let me begin with you. When, when Mr. Trudeau said what he said, how did you respond? What was your initial, what was your immediate reaction? Well, uh, absolutely um, outraged, embarrassed uh, that I'm a Canadian and that uh, my leader, my prime minister, would uh, say something that is so irresponsible. So it's, um, you know, it, it, it's so, uh, in, in some ways, it's so offensive to our citizens, to our Canadian citizens, uh, and it ridicules the intelligence of our population when he makes a remark like that. How's it playing in the United States, Sudi? What's the reaction? Uh, has, the Trump re- has the Trump administration reacted at all, and, and how some American media reacted? Well, it's amazing how he has had a series of comments that have been so off the wall, as you and I have talked about, that it's almost uh, become they've become anesthetized to it. But this one especially should really point out one of the deep pathologies of denial in that these aren't just uh, a sort of mercenaries going to fight some generic war that are coming back. The, the jihadist element in Syria is not only fighting Assad, they are creating a caliphate. Uh, they, they believe that the West secular governments are their enemy. So it, it sort of is, is extremely uh, educational that 
your prime minister and and obviously his supporters aren't even aware that the ideology of the jihadists globally has declared war on Western democracy, and and uh, they really have no uh, sense of the threat, and they look upon them as folks that should be brought back to lead the the <laughs> sort of the process of counter-radicalization, which I think his quote could be used from the uh, pulpit of of Baghdadi, who runs ISIS, which is exactly what he wants, which is to send Canadians back to supposedly under the under the guise of counter-radicalization actually end up plotting against those countries. And it's just, I hope Canadians look at what their prime minister said and say, you know what, this needs more attention. And our media, unfortunately, here in America has not paid attention to it. What do you think, Zudi, the reaction and the response from the ISIS leadership and other individuals uh, associated with ISIS is when they hear that the Canadian prime minister is making statements such as the one he made? Their, their response is, thank you very much. You're working with us and, and helping us uh, operationalize a, a lot of our jihadis into your society so that under the guise, and we saw this in Britain, there was organizations that were initially helping with the PREVENT program that ended up actually being radicalizers. You saw videos that were being done by on documentaries of folks that ended up committing acts of terror in London that were thought to be counter-radicalizing, which were actually radicalizing. So... Uh, I, I think ultimately uh, they, the ISIS folks are not only laughing, but they're saying thank you for it being agents of the jihad globally. Rahil, the, the Canadian Muslim population, in, uh, in, 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 you know, in a greater sense, how, how, what's the response to what the prime minister said? Well, first of all, uh, you know, let's take a minute to just clearly understand, and this is, you know, for all Canadians, as Zuzi, Zuzi said, they must know that although, you know, they must know what ISIS is. It's the epitome of pure evil. You know, we're not talking, this is why good and evil are separated. So, um, you know, what uh, the, the remark that our Prime Minister has made, it's deceiving and fooling his voters. He's trying to please the Muslim vote bank, but he has to understand that, you know, that, that ship has sailed. Uh, so for any responsible leader to even suggest that you can hug evil or that you can hug a terrorist or that there's even any ounce of good on in in these people is something that is bordering on, on ignorance. And we have to be very clear about why they're returning. They're not returning because they've given up or rejected the jihadist ideology and they suddenly love democracy. They're returning because they're getting a beating, they're getting hammered, and they're running away and they need a place to hide. So essentially, they should be tried for treason and they should pay for the crimes they have committed. So, you know, any normal, sensible person, Muslim and non-Muslim and Canadian citizen, understands this. Why our prime minister doesn't understand this is beyond me. Um. I'm also thinking that young, young and younger individuals—not necessarily always younger individuals, but younger and individuals who may be drawn into the idea of supporting ISIS, who may be drawn into the idea of, uh, if another opportunity avails itself, to travel overseas and, and join a death cult uh, like ISIS. If they hear the Prime Minister of Canada say there's a positive future. For someone who's done that and returned, wouldn't that just sound like an encouragement to them? Well, absolutely. And as Zuli said, they're applauding. They're laughing all the way. Because here they have got the prime minister of a country, a Western country, when they have clearly declared war on the West. I mean, I, which part of this is this 
of this do people not understand? And that has not changed. You know, you talked about that video for, uh, in years ago, Mm -hmm. that ideology remains. It has grown. They have declared war on the West, and they are not out to hug us. They are out to kill us. So, yes, it gives a very, very strong, very wrong message to those who are heading towards radicalization, and it takes away the years of work that we have done when we've been trying to expose the radical jihadist ideology. You know, uh, look at what's happening in, in Iran today. There are thousands of people protesting to turf out the Islamist regime. Now, if Mr. Trudeau, if young Mr. Trudeau continues unabashedly to support the Islamists and the, you know, the cause of the ISIS, sooner or later, he'll also be turfed out by the voters, and he should be. Yeah. If, um, and, and perhaps this time, Western countries will stand up and stand with the people in Iran who are in the streets uh, calling for democracy. In 2009, President Obama just put in his earplugs. Um, Zudi, if if Trudeau goes forward with this, and there's a criminal code that says if you went and joined ISIS, then, you, then you're in violation of, of the criminal code, and hopefully some court cases would, would, be, would be brought forward. But if he moves forward with this, and if, in fact, these ISIS individuals take on some leadership role, I find it hard to even say that, uh, take on some leadership role. What do you think the ultimate outcome is going to be? Well, I, I think ultimately you're going to see uh, a few months, if not years later, that uh, these individuals are going to help in in destabilizing and, and actually uh, committing acts of terrorism. And uh, under the rubric of the endorsement of the Canadian government, which is which is just horrific. And, you know, listen, we understand that it's complicated when you go to Syria. I've got family fighting Assad, so not everybody fighting Assad is ISIS. But when we're in the United States arresting people that are getting on a plane to go to Turkey, and the FBI says, you know what, you're being arrested because you're going to join ISIS. Or we just had a case finally in which a guy transferred $250 to help ISIS, and now he's going to serve at least four, if not five years, for doing that. When you do that on the one hand, and on the other hand, say, well, if they come back after having served and possibly killed people, indoctrinated under jihadi doctrine, those folks need to be, uh, as as Raheel very aptly said, this is treason. They should not be just sort of brought back into the fold to help in any program, let alone being free to operate and radicalize others in our population. Yeah, it's mind. It's really mind-numbing. Thank you both so much for, for joining us, Dr. Zudi Jasser, Rahil Rasa. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. What are pain patients addicted to? Uh, can I, you want to know what particular... Yeah, I'd like to... You tell, you tell me... Please, and tell my listeners, and which includes chronic pain patients, one of whom will be joining me shortly, what are pain patients addicted to? Well, I think you are asking a question that is trying to, uh, to describe the fact that there's a, a single or simple story, and I think that there, uh, I, I don't want to oversimplify. Uh, well, Minister, with, with, with due respect, I don't think you've answered any of my questions yet. Well, feel free to ask me another question then, and I'll see if I can satisfy you. That was uh, from my interview with the former Minister of Health federally in Canada, Jane Philpott. You can still find that. Um, Just go to the Roy Green Show page on any of the Chorus radio stations' websites that carry this program. 
And you can hear the interview with the minister, and she didn't answer my questions. This week, I, uh, I here's something I tweeted this week. Allison Kimberly, mom, 30. Ryan Trenzo, veteran, 26. Mercedes McGuire, four-year-old son. Zach Williams, veteran, brain injury, 35. Travis Patterson, Army Staff Sergeant, wounded by IED. All chronic agony patients refused pain-controlling prescription opioids. Non-addicts, all dead. Suicide. Far too many stories. This comes from from, uh, someone who tweeted this. I think it's Susan. My mom, Rita Langwell, died unnecessarily on November 18th. Mom fell and fractured four vertebrae. She was sent home with Tylenol for her pain. I told the hospital that mom was on oxygen and had to take three deep breathing exercises a day to keep her lungs clear and dry. They refused to let her have pain meds. I told them she had trouble breathing and they still refused to let her have them. She was in so much pain I would hear her crying at night. I called her family doctor and he said the hospital would not allow him to write a prescription for the pain. Franciscan Brothers Hospital was responsible for the refusal. Mum ended up in the hospital with double pneumonia and fluid in both lungs. I told them that what was going on, what was going to happen to her, but they ignored me. By the time she ended up in the hospital, it was too late to save her. They didn't want her to become a drug addict. She was 86 years old. This is the sort of story that breaks your heart. And there's story after story after story. Story after story after story. Of people who are living with chronic pain, which translates into chronic agony. They can't, they can't live. They barely exist. And you've heard them say on this program, and we've argued with some doctors, and we've, oh, you've heard the show. And when they were prescribed their opioid medications, and they were on the opioid medications for long periods of time, and there were no problems, they had a degree of quality of life returned. And then they started to get, get, get it withdrawn, 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 withdrawn. And now they're living in agony again. And that email, that tweet is going to get longer, unfortunately. Dr. Thomas Klein, Ph.D., he's uh, an American physician. And some pain patients who have sent me emails have described Dr. Klein as a saint. He's not pro-opioids. He's just, as I understand it, pro-correcting a terrible mistake. He's the author of The Myth the Prescriptions Caused the Opioid Crisis. Dr. Klein, thank you for coming on the program. We, we've been trying to get this done, and, uh, and I, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're here with us. My pleasure, Roy. Would you, in your words, describe to all of my listeners on both sides of the border what's going on, how did this happen, and why are we not, why are we not doing the sensible and that is just allowing the pain patients to be treated with medication that returns some quality of life. Uh, because we're afraid. We're afraid that we're going to see the resurgence of the dope fiend epidemic portrayed in 1936 in the famous movie Reefer Madness, 
which was actually produced by the United States government. A fellow that ran the Narcotics Bureau in the United States from 1930 to 1962 saw to it that his own personal views about drugs and crime came to the forefront. He had laws passed in the United States. He convinced states to pass laws to outlaw medications that would lead to dope fiends. Dope fiends, in his view, were primarily sexual predators, uh, black folk that convinced white teenagers to run off with them. He created stories that would make the hair stand on the back of your neck, all officially by the United States government. Things get into our fabric. The fear gets into our fabric, but we forget what the original reason was. If you were to ask, and maybe it would be interesting to ask some of your listeners, what is it that you're concerned about? If a person with an opioid addiction, and I'm going to call it addiction disease because it really is a disease, moved in next door to you, what would your fears be? The problem is that once you have a rampant fear, all logic disappears. It's very difficult to say to somebody, don't worry. But the facts are there that you really don't have to worry. It turns out, and we're probably going to find out in the next few months for sure, that opiate addiction is a true metabolic brain disease. It's triggered by opiates and also alcohol, it is not created by uh, opiates. That's real important because the assumption is that if you start spreading too many opiates around, you're going to addict everyone, and then what's going to happen? They're going to turn into dope fiends, and they're dangerous. Who's been talking to the folks with the addiction disease? Nobody. And if you talk to people with addiction disease, you find out that they really aren't the criminals that the fellow in the United States, and Slinger, created. Yes, people with addiction disease, or what we call junkies, and they call themselves junkies too, uh, with, with tongue in cheek. He said, sexual crimes, are you kidding me? We're so doped up, as he smiled, with our heroin dose, we're not interested in sex or doing anything. And he said, violent crime amongst people with addiction disease, almost never. And also the statistics in the United States show that as well. People that convict serious, uh, commit serious crimes are alcoholics and people who take alcohol with other drugs. In Vietnam, uh, the Army said 3% of people were shooting up heroin. turns out it was probably 40%. And when they came back to the United States in the early 70s for detoxification at the VA, which I was actually part of, 
they went through the usual withdrawals that anyone will go through who takes opiate pain medicine or antidepressants for that matter or benzodiazepines or sleep pills will go through these withdrawals. That's a physical thing. They call it dependence. That's a bad word. It's not being dependent on the medicine. It's just the way it's mixing up in your body. So a very famous researcher by the name of Lee Robin, who's now deceased, came from St. Louis to study what was going on. And the question was, how many people who've been on heroin in Vietnam are we going to have to pay for when they turn into addicts? So we took everybody off. Uh, there were 700 people all together. And guess how many addicted ended up with street addiction after taking intravenous pure heroin for months and months in Vietnam? I know what the answer is, but please go ahead and tell us. Well, now, Roy, don't spoil the story. I'm not going to. Uh, so the prediction would be, and that would be a good question to ask your audience, and everybody just kind of pick a number. So out of 100, how many became addicted? And the answer is two, possibly three. And Lee Robin thought that probably two of those were addicts when they went into the Army. So basically this means if we took everybody in the Dominion and gave them all intravenous heroin, 98% of people would not become addicted. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Dr. Thomas Klein is my guest. We're talking about, well, what are we talking about, Dr. Klein? Are we talking about, is the conversation about pain or is it about addiction? Well, the two are interrelated. We're, the reason we're not treating pain is because we're afraid of addiction. And that's why what you just said before the break, and which I find myself saying all the time, is why aren't people listening? Why are people doing this? Why are people dying? In the United States, there are 10 million people who need opiates every day for their pain disease, and 6 million have been taken off. 50% of doctors have stopped prescribing. 30% of, doc, of uh, pain clinics have stopped prescribing. Are they doing it out of, here in Canada, I keep hearing, they're doing it out of fear because they're afraid they're going to lose their medical license. They've been intimidated. The The people who run the, uh, or some who are members of the Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons say, no, that's wrong. We haven't intimidated doctors. Well, somewhere, doctors, somehow doctors are, are fearful. Yes, uh, that's a huge problem in the United States. The uh, Henry Anslinger, 1930 to 1962, uh, controlled the federal drug police, the previous uh, DEA, and he purposely sent them out to terrorize doctors because doctors were handing out the Satan pills and were causing the, were causing the addiction. So that's why the two are related. It's very important to realize that if you take a 1,000 people and give them all opiates, there's only going to be one person who becomes addicted and has to have the genes for that. So the doc, the uh, police started to enforce the moral concerns of the federal government narcotics bureau. And now we have the DEA that was interestingly created by Richard Nixon to enforce his particular law in the United States, which is the Controlled Substance Act. We now know through confession of John Ehrlichman in 1994 
that Richard Nixon designed the entire drug control program in order to catch his political enemies. Well, so Dr. Klein... Dr. Klein, I'm sorry. I have one minute. I want to have you back very soon, but we have one minute left today. Is there a way out of this morass? Are pain patients doomed, or is there there going to be ultimately some salvation? There has to be an understanding that this is a real disease, and if you don't have the genes for the disease, you will never become addicted. So the whole mess of trying to control and not give is useless. It's, it's uh, you know, not going to work. And we have to understand that. And there are plenty of statistics to show that. So we need to sit down and be logical and realize that we're operating against the winds of prejudice. But we're human beings, and we have the ability to think this through. And that's what we need to do. All right. I will ask you back very soon. And I thank you so much for today. And I understand why pain patients are referring to you as a saint. Well, that may be overblown, but I do enjoy being on your show. All right. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Dr. Thomas Klein. It's Thomas Klein, MD, at Thomas Klein, MD, on Twitter, at Thomas Klein, MD. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I always wondered why George Harrison didn't do more singing with the Beatles. It's always Lennon and McCartney. And then, of course, there was uh, the other dude, uh, Ringo, who is going to be a knight now. Sir, can't be Sir Ringo. Can't possibly be Sir Ringo. Sir Richard. So, yeah, I had a, are you there? Beauties, are you there? We are here. We're here. I'm here. Are you, Catherine's here. Are you spellbound? I did. I think it should be Sir Beauties. No. Yeah. I just want to hear you say that a bunch of times, Roy. Hold, hold on a sec. So, here was my here's my feeble joke about however many years ago when <laughs> when we played Phil Collins, and this got me into trouble. We played Phil Collins on the show one night, and it was, give me one more night. <laughs> and I said, and here's Guinevere's favorite song. Give me one more night. Some, peop- <laughs> some people got it. <laughs> some people got it. <laughs> well, I always think of the Black Knight in Monty Python, right? Yeah. It's only a flesh wound. <laughs> <laughs> Come back. I haven't begun to fight. <laughs> It's time for Beauties and the Beast, the final edition of 2017. WorkingCanadians.ca, former CEO, president, chair of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, described as one of Canada's most powerful women, Catherine Swift. Thanks, Roy. I know you don't <laughs> like me to say that. I know you don't like me I'll to just leave that. it there. I don't need all that. I love the truth. Who turned down <laughs> Senate appointment offers. For I did. We, That's so true. For which we will always question her sanity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and integrity. Oh, no, no integrity issues, just sanity. <laughs> Linda Leatherdale, former money editor of the Toronto Sun, vice president of Cambria, Canada. Uh, she is she's in possession of the Queen's, is it golden or diamond jubilee? The, go- the, the, the diamond jubilee Di- diamond medal, jubilee. along with... 
Michelle Simpson. We were together. We both got it. Yes. That was fun. That was a proud moment, Michelle. And I think for honesty and integrity and fighting back for the little guys, particularly against high taxes. And, as you well, and I'm sure Roy will talk about it, how honest you were when you were at Ottawa. She, she's the standard bearer. Michelle is the standard bearer for ethical behavior in Ottawa. Yeah, I want you to have a listen to this. Here's the Prime Minister of Canada, and uh, he was holding the, you know, the, the news conference after the ethics commissioner slapped him down pretty hard on uh, on four ethics violations. Mm-hmm. And it's always it's always gratifying to hear Mr. Trudeau try to explain things. So here's some of what he said. So how could that not have occurred to you, with all due respect? You were going to take a free holiday from someone you consider a friend. How could it not have occurred to you that that might not have been okay? The fact is, we work... Uh, the uh, Sorry, let me just try to reorder, reorder the thoughts. We... Um, worked with uh, the, the uh, uh, lobby conflict of interest commissioner uh, on a regular basis on a broad range of issues uh, when the issues come up. On this issue of a, a family vacation with a personal friend, um, it wasn't uh, considered that there would be an issue there. Uh, yeah, there obviously, obviously you, there was a mistake. Yourself, this is not obviously. maybe the best thing to do. The other time is uh, someone who has been a longtime friend uh, of my family's, a friend of mine, a friend uh, to Canada as well. Uh, and for me to look for uh, a place to have a quiet vacation where I can have quality family time is uh, something we all look for with our families. So, of course, the commissioner said that he wasn't a family friend at all. But why we? Why did that? Why did that get in the way? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and this gentleman Apparently was lobbying him and got money from the Canadian government. Come too. on, talk yeah. about lack of ethics. I know we have a bit of an issue with our phone system. And we sometimes you can't not, hear each other. Could you not tell by the tone in his voice because he had to ad lib that that there was an issue? Oh yeah, well yeah, of course. And this it's this the undertone of panic. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So we're going to tomorrow actually be talking about ethics with one of the uh, world's true experts on ethics and a frequent contributor to this program, Dr. Arthur Kaplan, will be with us from NYU and uh, talk about ethics involving a whole bunch of people, not just Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Trump or, or Weinstein or others. But we're yep. going to talk about ethics in the in a broader sense as well. So that'll happen tomorrow. So what we decided we would do today on the final show of the year, the final Beauties and the Beast segment, is each of us would choose a, a subject from 2017 and hold court on it. So why don't we start? And uh, Michelle, would you mind going first? No, not at all. As long as Catherine doesn't try to assassinate me. <laughs> because Never. for the Never. first time, um, I'm really defending the public service. The big story for me was the Phoenix pay system and its rollout. And what it's done for at 
ton of people in the public service. It's thrown them under the bus to the tune of what they say would be is going to be $1.2 billion and also involves CRA implications. And I rarely defend the public service, but in this case, I have to. And I, I heard a woman interviewed who wanted to retire, but she's afraid to because she feels she's better off on the inside than the outside. And it's been a boondoggle. And why they're not going after IBM, unfortunately, I can't tell you. But, you know, I really feel for these people that aren't paid, are underpaid, are overpaid, and the implications. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Okay, now we've set the bar. We, we, we only have about seven minutes for three, uh, three issues. So fire away, Catherine. Okay, well, I just want to touch on the economy of 2017, which we had some numbers, particularly in the first half of the year, which were quite strong, and a lot of people were, ooh, Canadian economy going like crazy. But uh, it's a cautionary tale because basically we know it was predicated on very indebted consumers, very indebted governments, and inflated real estate. And even though I'm an economist and, you know, we shouldn't make predictions because we were basically invented, apparently, to make meteorologists look good, um, I would suspect we're going to see a lot more negative stuff in 2018. All right. And uh, Linda, what's on your schedule? Okay. Well, Catherine, great for touching on the economy. But here's something, ethics we were just talking about. This is an old issue, Roy, but it really hit home when I read a great piece in the Globe and Mail an investigative piece showing that these white-collar crime crooks that are out there um, think of Madoff, Madoff, Madoff with your money. Um, it's, it's happening, and nothing has changed. And for years, there was a lady, I love her, I called her the angel. Gloria Ann Stromberg was fighting for a national securities regulator. Well, without that, these guys are able to feast. And this report just showed that there were fines levied up to billions, and none has been repaid. Some of these shysters don't even go to jail. In fact, because our laws are so lax, they go province to province. And believe me, when I was at the Toronto Sun, I wrote about this many a time. So I guess when I see, and you and I have talked about this, Roy, that all these crimesters on Wall Street never went to jail after the subprime meltdown, we have to have a great cleansing of casino capitalism. Ontario and Alberta now say they're going to step up to the plate. Fair enough. But there's too many seniors out there. There's too many people who have had their money ripped off, and they will now live in poverty after they saved for their retirement. Mm -hmm. That is just not fair. Another point, media. I have watched the demise, and I'm not going to go there because I don't want to get fired on your show, Roy. But I will just say (laughs) there is something else afoot that is wrong, and that is freedom of the press. That is a strong voice. Thank God there is the Globe and Mail and a few others that are still doing investigative journalism. But to put these crooks in jail, we need good reporters, and we don't need milk toast media. And unfortunately, that seems to be the way we're going with some communities not having a newspaper at all. Let's make a change. Okay. Are you okay? What? Are you okay? No, I'm not, Roy. I know you're not. Uh, uh, No, I know you're not. 
But I, I, unfortunately, I think the day and the, the age of the newspaper is gone. Okay, maybe that is. But let's not have fake news, if I can use that. Let's make sure whether the platform is on the Internet, wherever it is, that we have true journalists digging up the dirt. Well, it's all, about, it's all about, Linda, I think it's all about having reporters instead of repeaters. And you're one of them, Roy. Praise the Lord for the Roy Green Show. Thank Absolutely. Well, I, I'm, I'm one of the what? Which one? You're the one that still uncovers... Digs. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. That's the little guy that's doing it all the time, Roy. Thank yeah. you. Well, thank you for saying that. It matters. It's the only thing that, that, that really matters. The only reason I do this. Really. Uh, honestly, we've done a... Covered a I don't want to get into the history of the show, but we've done a lot of these things. Yeah. And when it turns out that somebody is benefited who otherwise would be suffering, there's nothing that makes you feel better to go home at night when you know that you were able to use the microphone and the power of the, the power of the microphone to provide somebody with something they deserve that they otherwise would not have received. You back the, Which you back is the no politicians in the corner. news, right. So my point that I wanted to raise, and I'm going to do this very quickly because I'm sure that we want to get back at a couple of things that we talked about. And um, the, all I'm going to say is, my issue is about ethics. It disturbs me tremendously when I have to listen to a prime minister babble his way through um, an apology which he should be able to sincerely deliver and not get stuck in the first sentence and talk about re repositioning his thoughts. Have a listen. So how could that not have occurred to you, with all due respect? You were going to take a free holiday from someone you consider a friend. How could it not have occurred to you that that might not have been okay? No. Uh, the fact is, we work... Uh, the uh, Sorry, let me just try to reorder, reorder the thoughts. Now, there you go. Look, that, that, was from a, we, an, that was from a news conference which featured questions from uh, a CBC reporter. So it just troubles me tremendously when the issue of ethics... Gets, gets run over when ethical issues become almost roadkill. And it makes me think of Michelle Simpson, who was the most ethical member of parliament that I could think of, who provided Canadians with the nickels and dimes information about how she spent the, um, the uh, what's that money called? Taxpayers' dollars. No, no, yeah. no, no, it's called, no, no, what's it called? My budget. Yeah, you spend your how you spend every every one of your dollars. But it was my budget, but taxpayers' money. Right, and you and you accounted for each one of the dollars you spent online. Yes. And you're the one who was hauled into, and we've talked about this, hauled into the party leader's office, and you were dragged over the coals after you refused to bribe to stop. So, yeah. and you did that without anybody knowing. You did that without the media spotlight without any anybody saying way to go michelle without you knowing that that was ever going to happen you did based on principle you set the bar for everybody else and unfortunately they they haven't been able to meet it but i said i would out them after the election i would out them if i said if i got defeated i'm outing you because it's wrong 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 so I didn't hide. And they all do it. You know, every, whenever there's an issue about transparency, about their own expenses, every single political party is guilty as sin. Yep. Every single one and, you know, a pox on all their houses, basically. Yes. When you have the checkbook 
and nobody looking over your shoulder. And I had a senator on this show a couple of years ago, and I said to him, what are the rules? What are the rules about how you can spend uh, your expenses money? And he said, well, I, when I became a senator, I actually asked the uh, powers that be and the bureaucracy, well, what, do I, what, do I, what can I spend this, this money on? And they said, anything you want. Whatever senator. you want. Well, Whatever didn't Duffy want. prove that? Hmm? Didn't the Duffy thing prove that? I mean, what he did was disgraceful, and yet all these judges said, oh, no, that's okay. We are entitled to our entitlements. Your Trudeau quote, though, Roy, that is not a one-off for this prime minister. He has consistently demonstrated no ability to feel responsible for his actions. You're right, Captain. Consistently. Canada is back. How can you say that? Canada is back. Back in the tank. I just All right. everybody in 2018, wake up, look in the mirror, make sure you're okay. not off your fellow men. Okay, kids, I got to go. Happy, happy New Year. Happy New Year. Oh, miss you already. Yeah, and Happy New Year. What? Happy New oh, Year. Oh, Happy New Year, yeah. Yeah, forgot that part. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next Saturday, right? We'll be back next year. Okay, next year. right. Okay, next toodaloo, got to go. Toodaloo. Toodaloo. Catherine, Linda, and Michelle. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.